Step right up, come one, come all. This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I, today, am your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. This is episode 8, number 8. Yes, we're already that far along. Today, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines syncretism as a combination of different forms of belief or practice or a fusion of two or more different inflectional forms. Now, I don't know what inflectional really means, so I went to Wikipedia to get the real answer to what syncretism means. And according to Wikipedia's page on syncretism, they define it as the combination of different, often seemingly contradictory beliefs while melding practices of various schools of thought. Syncretism involves the merger and analogizing of several originally discrete traditions, especially in the theology and mythology of religion, thus asserting an underlying unity and allowing for an inclusive approach to other faiths. Syncretism also occurs commonly in expressions of arts and culture, known as eclecticism, as well as politics, syncretic politics. So I read that definition, and I ponder syncretism, and I wonder how I feel about it as regard to Christianity. So I want to pose this question, and this question is pretty much entirely for you Christians listening out there. Um, If you're not a Christian, you can just phase me out for a few moments here. Just consider me white noise. Stare at your local flowers or that chipmunk over there. Hopefully you're outside. If you're not outside, well, then bring up a picture of a chipmunk on your computer screen or something and stare at it for a little while. Okay, so um, for Christians, I want to ask you, how do you feel about syncretism, especially as regards to Christianity molding with other cultures and other faiths? What do you think about that? Do you think it's possible? Do you think it happens? Do you think it never happens or it shouldn't ever happen? When I digest that thought, I immediately think of Christmas, right? And I, and so I think, okay, it's not that bad. Because clearly Christmas taking place on December 25th is in lieu of, you know, the Roman winter solstice. It's in lieu of a pagan holiday. You know, and you look at Constantine and, you know, his whole life is just a weird mesh and mixture of mixing Christianity with Roman politics and Roman paganism. And it's weird. So it certainly happens, and in cases where we've, you know, hijacked pagan holidays like the winter solstice, it seems like it's a really good thing. We've taken something that was bad and icky and made it Christ-mass, made it Christ-centered in a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's all well and good when we're talking about Christian tradition. You know, there's no book of the Bible that talks about how one must celebrate Christmas and commensurate with the Yuletide logs and the elves and all that you know obviously that stuff isn't a part of the canon of christianity you can let go of christmas and still be a christian at least you can let go of the holiday but where things get trickier is how one views syncretism that's imbued in the canon imbued in the bible imbued in the writing of scripture i don't think it's something we think about very often at least on you know your normal level. Maybe scholars are always pondering this and criticizing it and writing peer review articles. I don't know. I'm not of the ilk of the type of scholar that, you know, writes peer reviewed things. 
So when I came across this clear syncretism in Revelation 2014, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to process it. Hence why we're doing this podcast, and I'm regurgitating my thoughts out to you. On the one hand, it's something I I really like the idea of, right? I'm not a universalist. I'm not a Christian universalist that says, you know, all faiths lead to God. However, I like the idea that in some manner or another, all faiths have some sort of seed of truth or all myths have a backing in some sort of true story of how God made the world. But I don't know. Maybe you don't feel that same way. But I'll ask you before we dive in. Christian, how do you feel about the New Testament using other myth traditions, using other pagan ideas in the Bible to explain literary events or explain a point to us? Um, Non-Christians, you can stop looking at that chipmunk. Bring me back to the center of your attention. And I want to remind you about the character in Greek mythology that we know as Hades. Now... Hades has been portrayed various ways, Um, you know, like in those Rick Riordan books, uh, the Percy Jackson stories, and a little further back, the the Hercules movies, specifically the, the Disney one, I think of. So we, I think in modern culture, have an idea. When we hear the name Hades, we know, okay, Greek god of the underworld, and then substitute whatever pop culture reference image we have ingested and uh, that's our our view of Hades. But since we're talking about syncretism today and this is going to become very soon very readily apparent why I'm talking about Hades, uh, I want to retell real quickly here the story of Hades and Persephone. So this is Greek mythology. All right, Hades is one of uh, the three sons, uh, I believe, of Kronos and Rhea. So, you know, there's Zeus, god of the air, Poseidon, god of the sea, Zeus, god of the underworld. And Persephone was one of Zeus's daughters. And apparently Hades lusted after her and loved or wanted to love her and wanted to take her as his own. This story, by the way, is commonly referred to as the rape of Persephone. So you know where we're going here. So he, I guess, forms a little pact with Zeus that he's going to steal Persephone. And uh, Zeus makes a flower, a Narcissus flower, that happens to be right by a crack in the earth. Zeus makes it so beautiful that Persephone, just wandering about, has to come and smell the Narcissus flower. And as she does, Hades flies out with his chariot from the crack, grabs Persephone, drags her into the underworld. Now, specifically, this makes Persephone's mother really agitated. And she goes around makes a whole big huckus. Huckus? Hubbub? Ruckus, ruckus, that's the word I'm looking for. She goes around and makes a whole big ruckus in, you know, Greek god world, in Olympia or whatever, to get her daughter back. And eventually she does. Except, while Persephone's in the underworld, Hades tempts her to eat of a pomegranate. Apparently this pomegranate is magical pomegranate, and when she does... She's bound to at least spend part of the year down in the underworld with Hades. Um, And so this kind of works in in Greek mythology of how we have seasons, as I understand it. Because anyway, you know, part of the year, Persephone's out, and I guess that's spring and summer or something like that. And part of the world, she's not, so the colder months. But anyway, first I want to point out, there's something to be said in the ancient world about pomegranates. Pomegranates show up a lot in the Bible. Specifically, when they're making the Ark of the Covenant and they're building the tabernacle, they etch pomegranates all over the place. And that's always been curious to me. It makes me wonder if the pomegranate was the fruit that Eve 
ate from because it seems to have some like sacredness in God's eyes because God is saying you know make the tabernacle and etch pomegranates all around it and I don't know why he would do that like why did God see that as important I don't know the answer to that question so it doesn't seem like an illogical leap then to think that the pomegranate has some sort of spiritual significance the only piece of fruit that I can think of that has spiritual significance is the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which we don't know what that fruit is uh According to the movie Noah, it's some pulsating fruit like a heart. But I, I don't know. Traditionally, I guess everybody thinks of it as an apple. But for my money, I think it's pomegranate. Anyway, just wanted to note that, as I'm apt to do. But anyway, uh, I tell that story to give you a, a sense of Hades as a personified god or a personified being. With that in mind, let's go to our scripture for the day. So we're right at the back end of Revelation, and I really went back and forth whether or not to do this episode today, uh, just because Revelation is such a question-fueled book. It's the last book of the Bible, and it is really, really tough to get your head around. So I had this idea of doing a whole series of episodes on it, just taking it piece by piece, because, you know, we could probably fill up 40, 50 questions just in Revelation. And maybe it would make a lot of more sense if we were doing it, you know, as we were walking through the book. But at my church, we've been going through Revelation and we're right at the end. And I was just sitting in church hearing a sermon on Revelation chapter 20 and I couldn't get this question out of my mind. So I'm subject to my muse. This is the question that's on my mind this week. We're doing it. So to set the stage, I can't set the stage because because it's too much to set up. But the short of it is it's the end of all time. The last judgment is here. Christ is setting up his final reign. You know, it's the end of the world as we know it. And this is also a time of great judgment. And I'm going to go ahead and start, read a verse earlier. And I'm reading out of the old King James version. That's not the usual version I read out of for this podcast, but I'll tell you why I'm doing that in a moment. So here we go. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. I want to pinpoint on this idea of death and hell. So growing up, as a little kid, you kind of get the idea of when you die, there's one of two places you go to. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. But here, we're seeing this idea that hell itself is being thrown into a lake of fire. Now generally, I think whenever you see cartoons of hell or whatever, it's pretty much a lake of fire. So you, my mental image of this is a lake of fire being thrown into a lake of fire. Doesn't make much sense. And verse 13 definitely gives the sense that death and hell are places. So the first question out of all this is, why are death and hell personified? How is hell not like the end game? Why is the lake of fire-ish place being thrown into another lake of fire-ish place. What does that mean? And I read this first in the King James Version because my translation, the English Standard Version, doesn't translate hell as hell. It uses a different word. And I'll read it here. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Death and Hades. Well, that's confusing. Does John, the writer of Revelation, mean the god Hades is being thrown into the lake of fire? That at least makes more conceptual sense, right? Like this person being thrown into a lake of fire rather than lake of fire being thrown into a lake of fire. First thing I usually do in these instances is try to look for other instances that that word has been used in the book or in the Bible. And right away we see that this idea of death and hell or death and Hades in the book of Revelation are linked often. Here's reading from Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 and 18. And this is John before Jesus. 
When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Okay. Again, that can kind of make sense if Hades equals hell. So I have the keys of death and hell. Okay. Death would be, you know, the physical act of dying, and hell would be the place you go when you die. The bad place. So I would interpret that as Jesus has the key, so he has authority over dying. So he has the authority to cause immortality. And he has authority over hell, meaning he can rule over it and have no one be there or have everyone be there if he so wishes. That makes good enough sense, I think. Except, of course, you know, as we read this Hades, what he has the keys to the god Hades? That doesn't really make sense. And one more example, Revelation 6, 8... And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Alright, so that's right in the slog of the really trippy parts of Revelation. Today, we're not going to go into, is Revelation a strict retelling of future events? Is it an analogy? Is it a metaphor? Not going to get into that. Just that, here again, death and Hades, or death and hell, are personified, and hell slash Hades is riding on death's back. Sounds like a, like a sidekick in this instance. But then if we expand our scope and look at the whole Bible, an interesting thing occurs. Specifically looking at the King James Version, which is you know one of the oldest, if not the oldest, versions of the English Bible, the English translation of the Bible, you'll find that four different words are translated as hell. Alright, so hopefully you didn't throw away the hat that we used in last episode. I want you to go ahead and pull that hat out again, because we got to throw these four names into the hat. Okay, so first name for hell that we have is Hades, right? We've already talked about it. Probably the most famous instance of its usage is in the story, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16, when he's talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And so this is a parable, so again, it could be entirely figurative. Parables are not usually meant to be taken literally, as if they are specific events that have occurred. But in this tale, this parable, Jesus says there's a rich man and there's poor man Lazarus. And both die, and Lazarus goes into Abraham's bosom, whatever that means. And the rich man goes to Hades, which, again, King James Version translates as hell. And Hades is, again, your stereotypical description of horrible place of torment. And in there... This rich man is crying out, and he's he calls Abraham over, and he says, Abraham, let me go over to the good bosomy part. And he says, no, there's a huge chasm between here and there. So Hades there equals our prototypical view of hell. Fiery furnace of eternal torment and pain. Huzzah. <laughs> Another place that Hades is used is in Acts chapter 2, verse 27. And this is a sermon that the apostle Peter's giving. And as he's giving it, he quotes from Psalms. And as he quotes, he uses the word Hades. So I'll bust this out here. Acts 2.27 For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Okay, that's interesting enough, but that's a direct quote of a passage in the Old Testament, a Psalm of David. Now, the big one of the big differences between Old Testament and New Testament is New Testament's written in Greek, Old Testament's written in Hebrew. So... That makes it interesting to then look back at the passage that Peter's quoting here. If we do that, then we turn to Psalms 16, verse 10. And if we read it, we'll see it's verbatim what we just read. With one exception. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol, different word, not Hades. What does it mean? So the first thing to note here, of course, is that this is David writing, probably approximately 1000 B.C., so that's long before the Greeks are a player on the playing field. To give you an example of time range, Plato shows up around 400 BC. So we're 600 years before Plato. So we're definitely before the high watermark of Greek culture and the Hellenistic age. So most likely, the Hebrews have no clue, have no concept of this word Hades yet. So obviously, David wouldn't use that word. He uses the word sheol, which pretty much is the Jewish conception of just a resting place after you die. In the Old Testament, you die, whoever you are, good or bad, you go to sheol. And that's just like sleep land or something. I don't know. It's very vague. There's not a lot at all written about it. But the interesting part about it is that it doesn't seem to be a place of punishment or judgment. It just seems to be like smooth jazz music, right? You're just sitting there. You're in the waiting room. I remember when being like 12 and I had an ingrown toenail. I know, disgusting. And it was full dawn disgusting with pus and everything. And I'm waiting there, go and see the podiatrist, and there's just this cringeworthy, detestable smooth jazz. And for a few minutes it's fine, right? It's just lulling you along. But then over time it just becomes this thing of incessant evil. And that soprano saxophone no longer seems like a joy to you, but it seems like the end of all things. And you want smooth jazz to die in an inferno? Anyway, that's uh, not what Sheol is. <laughs> White noise. It's blank. Rest. Death, but a resting death. Or a nothing death. So right away there, we have confusion, right? We have Hades being associated in Jesus' parable with torment and destruction. But here, Hades is also associated or used as a synonym for Sheol, which is the nothing land, the land of smooth jazz. But yay, two names are only in our hat so far. Two more are yet to be uncovered. I believe the most common word that Jesus uses that he associates with our conception of hell is the word Gehenna. Now, the etymology of this word is really fascinating. It means literally Valley of Hinnom. But it has this horrible, detestable idea wrapped up in it because this was a place where the Hebrews often went to do child sacrifices. Uh, the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament documents Ahaz, one of the kings of Israel, putting his son through fire, which is a euphemism for sacrificing his son to a god. And doing that is always associated with this place, Hinnom, or the Valley of Hinnom. So over the years, over the generations, it becomes this word that the Jews all know as like the most detestable thing in the world. Of course, worshiping any other god but the one true god is the most venal of all sins. Idolatry is the most despised thing in God's universe. So especially from a Jewish mind, killing a person for the sake of a false god is horrible. And so almost every time Jesus talks about hell as a place of torment, he refers to it as Gehenna. Uh, and here's a, a quote from Matthew 10, verse 28. This is Jesus speaking. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell or Gehenna. So I'll read that with Gehenna. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. So here, hell is used as place of ultimate punishment, right? At least that's what it sounds like to me. That's the third name of hell we put into our hat. The final one is on a very similar chord to the idea of Hades for us. 
right? It's another syncretism or another allusion to Greek mythology. And that comes out of the short little epistle, the short little letter from Peter. This is Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, and then he goes on and on. It's a long sentence, so I won't read it all. So according to Peter in this passage, God sent angels into hell. And what's the Greek word that Peter uses in this context to refer to hell? It's not Gehenna. It's not Hades. It's not Sheol. It's Tartarus. Hmm. Ring, ring, ring. <laughs> Does that... For me, when I looked this word up... it. It sent off a lot of light bulbs and alarms and sounds and a little monkey clapping his symbols together. Because Tartarus is the prison that the Titans are sent to in Greek mythology. Here, Peter's telling us God sent angels to hell, but specifically to Tartarus. Just like Zeus and all his buddy gods sent the Titans to Tartarus. Whoa. <laughs> That is a higher degree of syncretism, because now we're not just talking about using a word. We're talking about, like, the same sort of event occurring. What does it mean? To me, this, these two events are so closely knit, so parallel. For the one hand, we know very, very little about angels. For all the talk of angels in Christian tradition, they only show up a few times in the Bible. There's only two angels that we know the names of, aside from Satan, and it's, it's just... <laughs> It doesn't happen often, right? We, we don't have a lot of intel on these guys. And then Peter just drops this bomb on us. <laughs> yeah, remember that time God sent these angels to Tartarus? What? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, we're like 15 pages from the end of the Bible, and you throw that bombshell at me? Crazy. And that bombshell happens to be almost identical to the story that we know from Greek mythology. In my brain, there's only one of two conclusions here. Either Peter's borrowing from the Greek myth... Or the Greek myth came out of the knowledge of the true event that Peter's speaking of. And Titans, okay, I mean, our conception of angels, fallen angels, would pretty much be the same as Titans. Titans were, you know, crazy godlike creatures that did chaotic things. So that's the, <laughs> that crazy one, that's the fourth name in our hat here for hell. And again, all those passages I read, if you're reading the King James Version, every single one of them is going to read just as hell. So you won't even know that there's different names for these things. And I would say, could all four of those things could represent real different places. They're not just direct synonyms for each other. So this is the point of the show where I wish I could wrap everything up in a bow and be like, and you see, Sheol means this, and Hades means this, and Gehenna means this, and Tartarus crazy, huh? That means this. Therefore, when John uses Hades in Revelation 20 verse 14, it means this. But I don't know. And again, that gets us to the point of this podcast is I regurgitate questions I have and you're forced to listen and not be given answers. So I'll, I'll just end the podcast like I often do. Again, this is kind of a twofold question. We could make it a threefold question if we throw in the question of Tartarus in there. But maybe we'll, we'll cover that whole Tartarus thing again in more detail in a later podcast because I feel like we just scratched the surface there with that. So, episode 8, our questions. 1. Why does John the Revelator, the writer of Revelations, borrow Greek mythology? Why does he, why does he even bother to use this Greek mythology-associated word Hades in the scriptures? 2. What does the word Hades actually refer to in Revelation 20 verse 14? This is Dante's Tech signing out. 
Peace be the journey. Hey, thanks for listening. 365 Honest Questions is produced by myself, Dante Stack. If you like what we got going on here, consider joining our Facebook page, writing me on Twitter, at Dante Stack, or checking out our website, DanteStack.com. And don't forget that I produce another weekly podcast. That one's called Solve the World. It's a coming-of-age adventure story in 100 weekly episodes. Finally, if you want to support this show, write a review on iTunes. That's the surest way you can help make sure that this program stays around. Thanks. (laughs) 